Welcome to This Academic Life, Episode 5. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis, Professor of Physics and Associate Dean of Research, Graduate Programs, and Natural Sciences. Hi, I'm Pani Anual. I'm an Assistant Professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a Professor in Mechanical Engineering. We are the hosts for this show. In this episode, we'll be discussing STEM women moving forward in academia. Although more women than men participate in higher education in the U.S., the same is not true when it comes to women pursuing careers in science and engineering. Despite the increased emphasis on gender equality, statistical evidence shows that the STEM gap keeps increasing. Only about a quarter of STEM workers are female. In academia, based on the last National Academy of Sciences report, women accounted for 10% of all faculty in physics, 18% in math, 10% in engineering. Even though we see more women are graduating from STEM degrees, the gender gap in STEM persists. Minority women are underrepresented in STEM. Out of all female doctorate graduates in STEM fields, with the majority being white or Asian, only 3% are Hispanic, fewer than 3% are Black. A survey of the top 50 university departments found smaller percentages of women at each rank, from assistant to associate to full, in nearly every STEM field. There is a wage gap in STEM. Women are paid an average of 89 cents per dollar that men in STEM make. Married women with children are the most disadvantaged due to household chores, child rearing, which results in greater stress and lower overall happiness. This is also true in academia. Women are more likely to leave STEM jobs than men. Each one of these items deserve a separate discussion. With all these challenges that women in STEM academia are facing, it seems to be an impossible endeavor to survive and to be successful in academic life. We're so honored here today to have one of the most successful female professors joining us to talk about her journey in exploring her academic life. Professor Robin Sullinger holds bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in physics from Harvard University. After postdoctoral work at UCLA, University of Maryland, and NIST, she joined as a physics faculty at the Catholic University of America in 1995 and moved to Kansas State University in 2005. She works in theoretical and computational soft matter physics, studying liquid crystals and programmable shape-shifting polymers. She's also strongly committed to outreach and runs a STEM research internship for high school students. Professor Selinger is mother of two adult children and works part-time as a musician. Welcome, Robin. We are delighted to have you here with us on the show. Let us start by telling us how you ended up pursuing a career in STEM fields. As a child, uh, I grew up having had very educated women in my family. So my mother 
was an RN who eventually got a master's when I was in middle school. Her mother was an MD, PhD, who was trained in Amsterdam and practiced medicine after emigrating to the U.S. The other grandmother was a dental hygienist who always wanted to be a dentist, but no one in her family could come up with the money to pay her tuition for that last year of dental school that would have enabled her. So I was sensitized to women's limited professional opportunities by that grandmother who challenged me when I said, I think I want to be a nurse like mommy. She said, why don't you be a doctor like daddy? So I grew up thinking, okay, I'll be a doctor like my dad. And, you know, doctors need to study science. So I took all the science opportunities I could get. One of those science opportunities was a summer program sponsored by the National Science Foundation. It was a research internship for high school students organized at Boston University, where I had the good luck to be apprenticed to Professor H. Eugene Stanley, a very distinguished statistical physicist. And he handed me off to a graduate student and said, basically, you know, teach me Monte Carlo simulation. And I fell in love with the field. And when the six weeks of the program was up and my project wasn't finished, the professor said, could you just stay? Like, why do you have to go home? It's like, well, you know, I have one more year of high school to finish. He's like, let me talk to your principal. So he arranged for me to go back and forth between the place I was growing up in Texas and Boston University back and forth all through my senior year. In all, I had 12 weeks off from high school in bits and pieces through the year. At the end of the year, I had my first publication. I had experience in high-performance computing of the time using an IBM mainframe, and I had admission to Harvard as a freshman. He wrote a letter, you know, to help me. One tragic thing that happened just before I left for Boston, my beloved chemistry teacher passed away from cancer, and it felt to me like I went directly from his funeral to the airport. Oh, there were nine days in between. So I went to that internship with this burning desire to fulfill the hopes and dreams that my beloved chemistry instructor had for me. And I guess I gave it everything I had. I worked really hard that summer and it launched me on a completely different career, you know, physics. And I gave up the idea of medicine not too long after that. Wow. What an inspiration. So as a physicist who graduated from Harvard, and has been at many other institutes, what have been your major challenges and how did you overcome them? The, the challenges for women in STEM in general or for people in STEM in general, one of the hardest ones, let's start with, with the early stages of the career. As an undergraduate and as a graduate student, I was keenly aware that in an environment where almost all my classmates were men, that if I wanted to be friendly, like let's work on a problem set together or, you know, just act like a, a friend, that there was always a danger that my friendliness would be misinterpreted as, as flirtation. And so it was very important to me to start wearing a ring as soon as possible. And so when my husband and I were engaged to be married, it was just before I started the PhD program at Harvard. And, you know, while I had been at Harvard for four years as an undergraduate, it was going to be a whole new cohort of classmates that were coming in. And it was really, really important to me to wear an engagement ring. And we could barely afford an engagement ring. We got a cheap one. So that way I could be completely friendly to people. And it's like, I already have a partner. I, you can don't have to worry about me. I'm harmless. I'm not flirting with you. You know, and it made things so much easier. I, I think in retrospect, if I were doing this again, I would have worn a ring the whole four years, but then I, maybe I wouldn't have found a husband. And I did marry one of my classmates, actually, Jonathan Selinger. He's a very distinguished physicist. So that was the first challenge. The second challenge was the two-body problem, 
which is that when we finished our PhDs, we needed to find two jobs in the same city. And that was a bear. And we had to do it over and over and over. So you have to do it for, for grad school, number one, and then postdoc number one, postdoc number two, and then to find some kind of permanent career. We were very lucky that both our PhD advisors were tremendous advocates for us. And we thought strategically, we've got a map of the United States, put it on the wall and started like piecing together applications. And we found something that worked every time. However, my husband gave up a postdoc with one of the best people in our field at University of Pennsylvania. I gave up a postdoc at Harvard. It was a Radcliffe, Inst well, a Bunting Institute fellowship because somehow my husband couldn't find a postdoc in Boston, which seems crazy. There's so many universities in Boston. So he gave up things for me. I gave up things for him. Then we found two jobs in the Washington DC area. I went to University of Maryland and he went to the Naval Research Lab, you know, and somehow we managed to work it out. Then the third big challenge is, you know, managing with kids. And we can talk more about that. But yeah, Lucy, you talked about work-family balance. One of the ways we managed is that we hired a nanny together with another family. We shared a nanny because we couldn't afford a full-time nanny by ourselves, not on the salaries we were making as young academics. And so the shared nanny model worked out really well for us. And you mentored probably a, a lot of women and men throughout your career. Any particular mentorship structure that that you see that could support and promote women in academia? I think every young faculty member, regardless of gender, needs a mentor for teaching and for writing research proposals. I don't think most people need mentoring when it comes to university service, but I could be wrong there. I just haven't needed, I don't have many colleagues who've asked me for support in that area. For teaching, it's obvious, right? There's, there's all kinds of tips and tricks that one can learn from a more experienced hand. And I was lucky to get that kind of mentorship at the Catholic University from my wonderful department chair, the late Chick Montrose. For research proposal writing, I do a lot of mentoring around research proposal writing. And the most important message that people need to hear when they're writing their first proposal is not to criticize the people whose shoulders they stand on. It's tempting to say, there's so much wrong with this field. You know, the, the existing theories are based on assumptions that are clearly wrong and I'm gonna sweep in and save the day because I have the best idea and you should fund me. The problem is the people whose work you're criticizing are the ones who are gonna review the proposal. So you have to learn to praise your senior colleagues whose work that you build upon and and talk about how your work was, you know, ideas were sparked and inspired and build on previous successes. And while there are challenges and things that are not perfect about the previous work, we don't stress the negative because you know those people are gonna read the proposal. I feel like I was, again, at the Catholic University as a young assistant professor, there was nobody there I could really collaborate with scientifically. All my colleagues there worked in, in fields that were so far from mine that my collaborators had to be elsewhere, which is fine. But I got good mentoring. And in particular, the vice president for research had been a program officer at NSF. And he basically is the one who read my initial drafts and made suggestions. So that actually leads us to the next question. So you're like one of the first APS fellow at your university. Why do you think women nominations for these awards are so low? I mean, comparing to men. 
Oh, Lucy, I do have some insight into that situation. The way APS does fellowship is that anyone who's going to be considered as a candidate must be nominated by colleagues. And it's a fairly work intensive process of assembling letters of nomination. And then the candidate needs to provide a CV and, and then there's a committee that evaluates. So in the leadership role I'm in now with APS, I've been part of many conversations about how to increase the representation of women among the nominee pool. And so one thing that we did, the chair of one of the divisions within APS sent me a list of all the members of that division who were women at a certain level of seniority. And I went through the list. And of course, I didn't know all of them, but I started checking H indices. And I found women that had H index of 50 who had never been nominated. Okay. So at that point, so I identify these candidates. I tell the, the chair of that division. The chair reaches out to others and say, can you write a nomination for that person? So we got them into the nomination pool and they all became fellows. We, so we need just, a champion. <laughs> well, you need, one imagines that there might be men who ask their PhD advisor, would you please nominate me? Or maybe they ask their senior colleague, would you please nominate me? Would you be willing mm-hmm. to write a letter? And maybe women just don't do that. I don't know. When we go up for at different universities and then we have all these tenure promotions and how, how, what can we do to kind of set an even playing field for women in that sense? And this is different, a little bit different than the societal nominations, right? My primary experience with this is through the College of Arts and Sciences at my current institution, which is Kent State. So Kent State's policies include, for instance, what they call tolling, which is that anyone who becomes a parent is eligible for a year's delay in their tenure review. Now, research has demonstrated that men more often use that year to get some awesome research done, and women actually spend the year lactating and changing diapers. So, you know, I don't know exactly how to make that fair. Um, I would say, based on my experience, because I'm serving in this role again this year, I'm on on that panel that evaluates tenure and promotion, also senior promotion. A key issue is that every department has its own handbook, which outlines the the standards for tenure and promotion. And those need to be updated regularly. So for instance, if your handbook was written before the rise of the vast number of publication venues that exist now, some of dubious quality, you know, you can self-publish a book these days pretty easily. So I would say the the place where I see the most room is where the standards are written in a squishy way. Because when the standards are written in a squishy way, it's easy for people to make them mean what they want it to mean. So in closing, there's one um, one last question. What more can we do to make a difference to promote inclusion, an inclusive environment in our professional fields and each of our own institutions? I know we've We've definitely made some strides toward doing the best that we can. But do you think there are some specific things that, you know, if you had your way, you would say, all universities, we need to do this. This could work. This could turn out to be a best practice. Well, Kim, these are issues that are being debated at the highest levels in the American Physical Society about what we can do in our community as a whole. Mm. Historically, efforts to promote the success of women in STEM have uh, used the method of putting all the women in STEM in one room and then offering them professional skills development training. 
like negotiation skills, communication skills. I have participated in those workshops and they've been very helpful. I've also attended the HERS Institute training, which is again, designed to help women learn the skills that are necessary to be successful in leadership. Put all the women in one place and teach them what they need to know to survive in a man's world is what that sounds like, right? And in some cases, for instance, the workshop on uh, communication and, and negotiation, they literally talk to us about using typically male body language, like take up space, sit with your knees apart, sit up high and, you know, apply your, you know, raise your voice and don't speak in a high register because men don't like to listen to that. You know, so about how to communicate and, and those are all really valuable, but it's not enough. Okay. So teaching women about the microaggression you're going to experience, fine, you can do that, but it's not enough. We have to talk to the rest of the world right? We have to talk to the rest of the world. And so I've been contemplating how to do that. And, you know, there's been many attempts about sexual harassment training and how to create inclusive environments. I'm not an expert in that field, and I don't, don't know exactly what the answers are, but here's what I have in mind. You may recall that in introductory physics, we define velocity as the first derivative of position with respect to time, and acceleration is the second derivative. Little did you know, there's a third thing, which is the third derivative position with respect to time is called jerk. So jerk is d cubed x, you know, by dt cubed. And it's like, we need to have a, uh, we need to have a campaign. Don't be a d cubed x by dt cubed. Don't be a jerk. And, I love um, it. <laughs> so the American Physical Society has, for instance, put together a set of rules governing behavior at conferences. And if you feel that someone's breaking those rules, what you're supposed to do about it. But let's also look at the big picture of women in male-dominated professions. There was a time when it was considered dangerous for women to be in the company of men, right? They needed to have be chaperoned and protected. Now, they didn't prevent there being, you know, sexual harassment and rape, but at least there was some recognition that women were vulnerable and they, that they needed some level of protection. And then we said, you know, let us in. We want to be part of this world. We want to be part of uh, university life. We want to be part of all those things. And we will deal with the problems when they come. Okay. And then the problems came and we haven't really figured out how to deal with them. Betty Free Dan came to Harvard as a visiting scholar when I was an undergraduate. And I sat at a women's studies table with her in the dining room in my dormitory and we were talking about affirmative action also. And I said, you know, I worry about affirmative action. It's a double-edged sword. Sure, it, it must benefit me. But I also recognize that whenever I win anything, my male classmates say they gave it to her because she's a girl. And I felt a little anxious about that. And Betty Friedan said, listen, young lady, if there were no affirmative action, Harvard would still be all male. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you're here, there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. Well, Robin, thank you for taking time with us to discuss and provide insight into women moving forward in STEM. We recognize that we have many challenges, however, we have made great strides. Nevertheless, we will continue to bring forth strategies to promote women throughout the ranks of the academy. Robin, thank you so much again for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. And I look forward to the future success of your podcast. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, friends. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. 
We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.